You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. I really enjoy this this weekend every year, uh, not just the, the process of bringing these families up and praying for them, uh, but also just the, the process leading up to looking through scriptures, trying to find a life verse for each one of them. And, um, and I, I want to, as, as I talk about that, I want to share, I thought a little bit about my own name and a little bit about how, uh, what life verse I might have, and I'll lean into that in just in a minute a little bit more. But in the rest of our time together, we want to examine, uh, continue our series of messages uh, entitled uh, The Jesus Myth. We're looking at how that there's many myths about Jesus and many the myths that people have believed about the person of Jesus. During the first two weeks of this series, we've examined the view that Jesus is an angry Jesus or that he was a political Jesus. And we've observed how that, that actually in Scripture we learn that Jesus was very intentional. Yes, he demonstrated that which was, he was angry with, but it was a righteous anger and it was under uh, self-control. And we also looked last week in how that Jesus transcends the politics of any particular generation. This week, we want to dismantle the view that Jesus is the hall monitor who's hiding, lurking around the corner, trying to catch us at a time where maybe we are in a moment of weakness or that we have messed up in some way. Now, some of you are a lot closer uh, to your days in junior high or high school than I am, And yet, I still have some bad memories of teachers who who called me out or embarrassed me in front of others. And uh, to help illustrate uh, how that played out in a particular way, especially when I was in middle school, I want to share with you a video. I went back and researched and found a video of a commercial that was really popular when I was in upper grade school and middle school, and uh, maybe it'll explain some things about me, but let's just watch this video. Wash your hands, Roger. Wash your hands, Roger. Wash your hands, Roger. Wash your hands, Roger. Yeah, wash your hands, Roger. Your mom got you something special, lava. Lava's pumice gets them clean with one wash. Wash your hands, Roger. Show daddy your hands, Roger. Well, the first time they're clean. Mom knows nothing beats lava for kids. Lava gets hands clean the first time. Well, that commercial explains a lot of things, okay? First of all, it explains why I'm a bit of a germaphobe, okay? And uh, wash my hands many times each day. It also explains why my name, the decade I was born, was the 37th most popular boy name in our country, and now it's fallen off the chart, okay? Because who wants to name their child a name which is synonymous with dirty hands, okay? 
Uh, and I'm, I'm still scarred by this experience because when I was in seventh grade, and seventh grade is kind of a tough year uh, about your identity and who you are and you're trying to figure all that out. And I had a, a science teacher in seventh grade that was fascinated with this commercial. And so every time I walked in the classroom, he would say, wash your hands, Roger. And he said it every single day, I think, that school year. In fact, on the final exam, that one of the questions was, wash your hands blank. And when the kids got to it, they just all laughed, and I was tempted just to answer it wrong out of protest. But, uh, but you see, I, I, you know, and I've thought about that as I thought about that commercial, and I thought... You know, at that time, maybe a life verse for me would be some scripture from the Old Testament, maybe some obscure book like the book of Leviticus. It talks about ceremonial cleaning, washing your hands. I don't know. But uh, interesting enough, a particular Bible story we're going to look at today, we're going to look at how there's a description of ceremonial washing of hands. And we're going to look at how that from this story we can see that, that Jesus wasn't this hall monitor type uh, authority just looking for an opportunity to catch us in a moment of weakness, but instead he actually calls out a group of individuals, a group of guys who were really the real hall monitors of the day. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7, or you can follow along in the message notes or on the screen. But in Mark 7, we read these words. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, possibly some of you would have expected Jesus to be the one who would be enforcing hand-washing practices, but actually He's the one who's being called out by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, some of you have even possibly wondered, who are these Pharisees? You know, a lot of times in these stories depicting the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus, he seems to be having this ongoing feud or this ongoing, ongoing conflict with this group of people called the Pharisees. Well, who were they? Who were these teachers of the law? Well, just like today, we have various faith traditions under the umbrella of Christianity, whether it be Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, or Presbyterian, or you can continue to fill in the blank. In Jesus' day, there were different faith traditions under the umbrella of Judaism that all emphasized different things. The three prominent groups of Jesus' day, uh, the three prominent branches of Judaism in Jesus' day were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, who all had different points of view on some serious matters of faith. John the Baptist probably most closely reflected the Essenes, who seemed to be a little bit more, they would remove themselves from uh, modern culture and kind of live a withdrawn life. 
And yet there were significant differences between the other two major groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For example, the Pharisees believed in resurrection. They believed in afterlife. They believed in uh, heaven and hell. They believed in angels. Interesting enough, the Sadducees, who were kind of the political power brokers of the day, they controlled the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was like their supreme court. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. Now, the way that I can remember that is that it's sad, you see, that they didn't believe in heaven. Okay, so that's, I know that's corny, but that's how I remember it. So the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. The Pharisees did. Now, the Pharisees were in many ways the hall monitors of their day as they seemingly were obsessed with purity laws and specifically with laws that had to do with whether or not somebody was clean or unclean. Now, this passage specifically deals with ceremonial washing, which includes washing not only of their hands, but also of their pitchers, their cups, and their kettles. Now, there are two observations that we want to make and address from this practice. The first is that the word for washing in verse 4 has the same root word, which is translated in other places of the Bible as baptize or baptizing. And in fact, in the New Living Translation, it even reads to immerse these cups, and that's a correct translation. This is why many of the archaeological digs in Israel that unearth old synagogues, you can find outside the building, this. it's usually built out of stone, but it's very similar to what we have up here, a a tank that people could be immersed before they went into the synagogue. In fact, when I was in Israel seven years ago, on our tour when we would visit different sites, and if we would visit an old synagogue that had been unearthed, the, the tour guide would point out the immersion tank outside the ancient synagogue. Why? Because to be ceremonially clean, they would be immersed before going into the synagogue. Now, this is just one more evidence that the word baptize originally meant to immerse, which is why we as a church practice baptism by immersion. On on that observation, I just wanted to share, it was a privilege last Sunday night at our family Y night, which was a Y uh, night just designed to have fun over at the Y, but we had a young lady, Sarah Niffley, that made her decision to be baptized into Christ, and it was moving to see her ask her older cousin, Rachel Parks, to baptize her. Now, at Southwest, we believe that baptism is a one-time faith event that marks the beginning of an individual's faith journey. And yet, our focus on Jesus in that act of faith and our continually focus on Him is our confidence of what that we can be kept clean regardless of what snares, potholes, or messes we might find ourselves. So that's one observation from this text. Another observation is that it's important for us to realize that the, the Pharisees were going beyond what was written. You see, in the Old Testament, the ceremonial cleansing practices that, that are being discussed here were actually just describing the, the priests 
okay, or the Levites, which is a particular tribe who helped the Pharisees take care of the temple. And yet by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had expanded these teachings regarding all ceremonial cleansing for the priests to all the Jewish people. You see, the Pharisees were famous for building a fence around an Old Testament command to make sure that they didn't break the command. Let me see if I can explain this further. You see, there was a command in the Old Testament that the priests were to be ceremonial clean and that they had to do all these ceremonial washings. So the Pharisees reasoned, well, if that's true for the priests, let's expand that to all the Jewish people, and then we know we're going to be okay. So they built a fence around a command, and then that fence became burdensome. Now, religious people still do that today. Let me give a couple examples. You see, I'm asked often, you know, where's the church stand on issues of drinking alcohol? Well, the Bible doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. The Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. Now, some churches have built a fence around alcohol to say, okay, if drunkenness is a sin, let's build a fence and say you can't drink. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have an issue with alcohol, then I would, I would recommend, advise that you don't drink. If that's been a problem for you in the past, if, if you have an addiction in your past or even present, then maybe that's the step you need to make. But to make a blanket statement to drink alcohol is a sin is going beyond that which is written. Another example would be, um, and, and I know an individual that grew up like this, a guy named Jeff Walling, who's a professor uh, Pepperdine University in California. He's also a preacher, and he's written a book. In one of his books, he, he described how that growing up, he was a part of a religious group that, that believed since the Bible says sexual immorality is a sin, their church reasoned, well, dancing, young people dancing might lead to, you know, maybe desires that would lead to sexual immorality. So they built a fence around dancing and said, then it's a sin to dance. Well, the Bible never says that. And so he tells the story when he was in fourth grade, how that the fourth grade teacher did a series where they, she taught the children how to square dance. Well, he was excited about it. And he came home from school one day and said, Mom, Dad, we learned how to square dance. And he, they said, oh, wait a minute, we don't dance. So they wrote a note to the teacher. You know, Jeff cannot dance in class. So the teacher was wise. She didn't make attention to that. And she just asked Jeff, would you play the record player for us and man that so that the other kids could dance? And he gladly, to avoid embarrassment, did that. He wrote in his book that he never had the courage to tell his parents that although he didn't dance, he was aiding and abetting others who participated in such evil. Now, you see, these are a couple of examples how today there's still Pharisees who build fences around things that are in Scripture. Jesus called that out as dangerous. And yet, back to our issue at hand, the issue of hand washing. In verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law ask him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, 
for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. You see, Jesus is calling them out for getting all caught up in these man-made ideas, rules, and teachings and losing sight of the real commands of God. Now, this can be true by adding rules to God's Word, which the Pharisees did. We see religious people still do that today. And focusing on them as opposed to the true commands of God. On the other hand, we can also be so caught up in observing uh, man-made rules that we lose sight of the true commands of God, which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 8. And I like how the New Revised Standard Version reads, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Jesus specifically calls out these religious leaders for being hypocrites. It's interesting that the word hypocrite, I don't know if you knew this, it comes from the world of theater. According to one commentator, this is what he wrote, in Greek theater, actors were, wore various masks according to the roles that they impersonated. The word hypocrite, accordingly, comes to mean someone who acts a role without sincerity, hence a pretender. So being a hypocrite doesn't simply mean that you're not perfect in living out your faith, because if that's the case, we're all hypocrites. But what Jesus is calling out is someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. This is something that Jesus called out in the Pharisees. They were acting, they were pretending to be something they weren't. And unfortunately, such pretense didn't die out with the Pharisees. I've been guilty of being a hypocrite. Growing up in a religious home, there were certain morals and and certain practices that I adhered to because that's how I'd been taught, and yet I hadn't yet made a personal decision about Jesus. And so there was this inconsistency in my life, and I knew it down deep, but I still played the part of the religious kid, and I'll never forget. One time I was trapped in hypocrisy, and it it was painful, but it, it woke me up that I had to make a decision. You see, I was, I was a freshman in college, and, and, and although I had this religious air about me, I wasn't right with God. My heart wasn't right. And, and I came home from class, and I lived in a dorm, and I came home from class one day, and there was nobody in the dorm. It, it was weird. It was eerie. It was like, you know, they'd all left, and the dorm was empty, and I walked down the hall looking for somebody. I looked in one of the guy's rooms across the hall, and I saw on the coffee table a Playboy magazine, and, you know, I'd even called out some of my friends for looking at pornography, and then I was there all alone. And this is embarrassing to admit, but I actually walked out in the hallway and I looked down the hall, didn't see anybody. I walked back in my friend's room and I sat down and I opened up the Playboy and started looking through it. What I didn't realize is I lived around a bunch of pranksters. They were about four or five guys were hiding in a closet to scare me. And they saw the whole thing. And they came out of the closet and they said, Hendrix is looking at a Playboy. And I felt so fake and so small. And I asked myself, am I just going to play the game? Am I just going to wear the mask? 
Or am I going to really be a Jesus follower? How about you? Well, Jesus goes on to give another example of abandoning the commandments of God. We don't have much time to deal with this, but I just want to mention it because it's really interesting. Maybe some of you wondered about this. He talks about this practice, this example of Corbin. Let's read about it quickly and then make a comment or two, and then we'll wrap up. But in verse 9, he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that that might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. You see, sometimes human religions can come up with sophisticated ways of getting around obeying God. The Pharisees developed this practice of Corban. Now, you might say, what's Corban? Here's what one commentator wrote. Corban, from the Hebrew word for offering, was a rabbinic custom derived from the practice of devoting goods to the Lord. It was a vow. So something that was declared Corban was similar to the concept of deferred giving. Let me see if I can give an example. If a couple had elderly parents, and this was in a day where they didn't have Social Security and pension plans and so forth, and so if those elderly plans couldn't, parents couldn't work, according to Scripture, according to the law of Moses, they were to honor their mother and father. They were to provide for their parents their physical needs, housing, living, medical, etc., And yet, the Pharisees had developed this practice of Corban so that, let's say that somebody had elderly parents that they needed to take care of, but they also had a desire to make a purchase. Maybe it was that two-hump camel. I don't know. You know, I don't know what they wanted to purchase in that day. Maybe in our day, it would be a yacht. And you really want that yacht. You really want that big boat. But you say, I've got some expense over here with my parents. So this was their trick. Let me purchase something I really want for myself but I will devote it to God so that when I die, it's left to God. Now, I don't know what God needs a two-hump camel or a yacht for, but this was their reasoning. So then when mom and dad came to them and said, hey, we've got some needs, they said, oh, I'd love to help you, mom and dad, but I've got things invested in that which is an offering to God. Jesus says, you're just play-acting. You're pretending to be devout. You're pretending to be righteous, but your heart's not right. In fact, in verse 14, then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All of you, listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. Jesus says, don't get caught up in wearing the mask of pretending, focusing on the outward ceremony or the elaborate schemes of rules and regulations, and miss the heart of the matter. What really causes you to be unclean is when there's stuff in your heart that's wrong, sins of the heart. This is how Jesus described the sins of the heart in verse 20. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside 
and defile person. You see, Jesus wasn't advocating that we not be clean or that we not have proper hygiene. But he's saying that what really matters is that you clean up what's on the inside. That we not simply stop with the outward cleaning, but that instead we long for and seek for a heart that's been cleansed and has been cleaned out. You see, Jesus turns the table on the real hall monitors and says that the cleansing that he came to bring was the cleansing of the heart. Jesus didn't come to enforce the law of Moses and to catch us in some violation of a command, but he came so that we could internalize the commands of God. Jesus came not to bring us more instructions on outward cleaning, but he came to bring us hope of an inward cleaning. This Bible passage is one that really challenged me the first time I read it. Because I knew then and I still recognize that when I mess up and when I get off track in life, it isn't because of some technicality. It's because I have some junk in my heart, some sin that needs to be repented of, some sin that needs to be cleaned out. You see, we worship a God that knows what's going on on the inside. Now, we can be pretty good at cleaning up the outside. We can be pretty good at putting on our church face. We can be pretty good at putting on the church clothes and playing the part. But the question is, are we allowing God to do the work on the inside of us? We can also be pretty good at judging others from the outward. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't come to judge our outer appearance, but he came to give us a teaching of how we can have inner cleaning. You see, we worship a God who knows what's going on on the inside. And he wants to clean us up there. We live in a world and a time that before you get on an airplane before you go to a ball game, before you go into some state or federal building, you have to go through a metal detector. Why? Because people want to detect, is there something you're seeking to conceal which could bring harm? In just a few moments, we're going to be observing communion. And I thought about this as we pass the baskets, pass the tray, excuse me, where we've got these pieces of bread that remind us of the body of Christ. And we've got the communion cups that remind us of the blood of Jesus. And I thought, what wouldn't it be powerful if we had the technology? Now, don't get nervous. We don't have this technology. But wouldn't it be powerful if we had the technology that as that tray is passed to you and you grab it, and you take a piece of bread. If, if it, every person did that up on the screen, flash what was going on on the inside. If up on the screen, flash what your heart looked like this past week. And some of you go, oh, I wouldn't like that. Now, here's the deal. God already knows, doesn't he? God knows what's going on on the inside. And he longs to clean us up there. Scripture says we take communion, we're to examine ourselves. 
were to examine our hearts. The real cleaning that is only possible on the inside is through a personal relationship with Jesus. For the person who trusts and follows Jesus, this is the promise from Scripture in 1 John. But if we are living in the light as God is in light, then we have fellowship with, Jesus, with each other. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us on the inside from all sin. Well, that's good news, isn't it? Isn't it good news to know that Jesus will cleanse us of anything we've ever done in the past, anything we've done recently? That is good news. Do you have that confidence that you've been cleaned, that you've been cleansed? Do you have the assurance that you've been purified, that you've been cleansed by Jesus from the inside? If not, then we want to encourage you to keep coming here because we want everyone that worships here to know the confidence of being forgiven and being cleansed, have that clean conscience. Keep coming. We want to encourage you to even come to our discovery class this Thursday so you can learn how you can have complete assurance that you've been cleansed, you've been forgiven by Jesus. You see, here at Southwest, we emphasize it's only in Jesus that we can have real cleansing and the real hope. Now, that doesn't mean that even though it's an inward cleansing that Jesus doesn't call us to take steps of obedience. In fact, in steps of obedience, it leads us to identify with the one who brings real cleansing, whether it be in the act of faith in baptism or in the act of faith of communion. Both acts help us fully identify with the one who brings real cleansing. Our time is up. But what I want to ask you during this time of communion, to ask yourself, is there something in your heart, in your life, that you need to confess to God during this time? If so, allow this to be a time of confession. Maybe for some there's an act of obedience that that has been prompted in your heart today that has been initiated so you can identify fully with the one who brings real cleansing. But let's allow this to be a time of inward reflection and allow this to be a time to recognize that we worship a God who knows what's going on in the inside. And He longs for worshipers that just don't go through the motions but worship Him with heart and soul and mind and strength. Let's approach Him and be grateful for the one who brings real cleansing. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank You for this time of communion, a time we can be reminded of the depth of Your love to send Your Son and the depth of Jesus' love to die for us so that we could be made whole. Help us not settle for anything less than that. Help us do that inward reflection during this time to truly, truly bring our insides out to worship you. We love you, God, and we thank you for this time of worship to reflect on your love for us and our devotion to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. 
We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 p.m.